Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled The Vietnam War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide The Origins of the Vietnam War. When did the Vietnam War begin? There is very little consensus among scholars. What they can agree on is that the Vietnamese have been fighting for independence for centuries. In 111 BCE, the Chinese conquered the Viet ethnic group and ruled the region as a province for the next 1,000 years. The Vietnamese periodically rebelled and finally won their independence in the 10th century AD. The Vietnamese also defeated several Mongol invasions in the 1300, maintaining their independence. But in the 1860s, France began colonizing the region and called it Indochina. The French built up infrastructure, but largely exploited the region for its resources. French missionaries spread Catholicism in the country and created a Catholic minority that had preference in government positions. The Buddhist majority will continue to resent the power of Catholics for decades, and it is in this environment that the Vietnamese nationalist movement began to brew. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Ho Chi Minh. In 1911, 21-year-old Ho Chi Minh was a Vietnamese nationalist who had been harassed by French authorities and left the region. He traveled to the United States and worked as a pastry chef in Boston and a domestic servant in New York before traveling to Great Britain where he learned about Karl Marx's ideology. Later, he moved to France near the end of the First World War and he petitioned the Allied leaders at Versailles for self-determination for his people. He asked for equal rights for Vietnamese people and for representation in the French Parliament, not for independence. But even this modest request was rejected, and he became angry about the West's hypocrisy. In 1920, Ho Chi Minh helped found the French Communist Party. He liked Lenin's radical, anti-colonial ideas, about how peasant societies could help overthrow global capitalism. He did a masterful job linking communism with Vietnamese nationalism. From 1923 to 1924, Ho Chi Minh spent time in Moscow and in China, where he worked to establish a revolutionary organization of Vietnamese expatriates. Throughout the 1920s, French authorities were cracking down on communist groups in Indochina, and this fed his movement. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Second World War. In 1940, the Germans invaded and defeated France, and by the end of 1941, Japanese troops had occupied all of Indochina. In May 1941, Ho Chi Minh and other communists met and formed the Viet Minh. They organized guerrilla units to fight the Japanese and prepare for the eventual Vietnamese independence. The Viet Minh became skilled guerrilla fighters and battle-hardened veterans who will use this experience against the French and the Americans. In the war's final weeks, the United States even provided them with weapons. And we see here the potential to work with the Vietnamese rather than fight them. In August of 1945, Japan surrendered to the Allies, and the Viet Minh quickly moved to control the country. On September 2, 1945, Ho Chi Minh declared Vietnam's independence, and he began his speech with the line, quote, All men are created equal. They are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ho Chi Minh was directly trying to court the United States and gain their support. Ho Chi Minh became the first official president of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, or DRV for short. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Courting the United States. Ho Chi Minh had hoped to attract the United States' support for Vietnamese independence. And he had reason to be hopeful because FDR, like Wilson before him, had talked a lot about self-determination. But with the onset of the Cold War, Truman saw France as a valuable ally. And the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, threatened to align closer with the Soviets if the United States did not help France re-establish colonization. So for now, the United States officially stayed neutral on the matter. This opened the door for France, who was desperate to re-establish its empire 
to come back in and try and control Indochina. Fighting broke out in the streets between the French and Vietnamese forces almost immediately, and by late 1946, France and the DRV were at war. Ho Chi Minh rallied his people, saying, quote, Those who have rifles will use their rifles. Those who have swords will use their swords. Those who have no swords will use spades, hoes, or sticks. End quote. So as you can see, this is a whole popular movement to maintain independence. War between France and the DRV eventually reached a bloody stalemate, with both sides needing financial assistance. France got aid from the United States, and the DRV got aid from the Soviets. Historian Mark Lawrence said, quote, At this crucial turning point, the war in Vietnam assumed a dual character that would persist for years to come. It was simultaneously a colonial struggle and a Cold War confrontation, end quote. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Why Get Involved? France was an important NATO ally. France had stated that if America interfered, they would align themselves with the Soviets. So due to Cold War logic, this would polarize the world and create limited opportunities for policymakers. To the Americans, they saw a communist threat everywhere. In 1948, there were communist rebellions in Malaya and Burma, and some Americans worried about the dominoes falling in Southeast Asia. Also, Southeast Asia's resources were important for Britain and Japan, two critical U.S. allies who were still suffering through the effects of the Second World War. In addition, Japan's post-war economy depended on the Southeastern Asian markets and resources. Into this environment, in 1949, China, located just north of Vietnam, went communist as Mao Zedong defeated Chiang Kai-shek in the Chinese Civil War. And remember, in America, Senator McCarthy is really attacking President Truman over their handling of the Cold War. So at this point, it becomes political necessity to help France fight. Also, in 1950, North Korean forces invaded South Korea. So to Americans, it did appear communism was on the march, and it was necessary to contain it. So the United States steadily increased their aid to the French. By 1954, the United States was paying 80% of all French defense costs in Vietnam. The French forces there eventually rose to 500,000 men. But guerrilla warfare was taking its toll, as bridges were cut, trains blown up, there was firing in all directions every night, it was chaos, and French soldiers hated it. By the end of 1952, the French had suffered more than 50,000 casualties. In France, the conflict became known as the Dirty War, and there were mass protests against France's involvement in Indochina. And we see a lot of parallels between the French experience there and Americans' experience a decade later, which is why Ken Burns entitled his first episode of the Vietnam War documentary as Deja Vu. Please advance to the next slide entitled French Defeat. By 1954, China was also supporting the DRV, and was sending 10,000 tons of supplies per month to Vietnam. In addition, there were more than 250,000 Chinese troops stationed on the border in case someone else got involved. The low point for France came in spring 1954. There had been plans to hold peace talks, and both sides wanted to gain the upper hand before the official peace conference. There were 12,000 French soldiers dug in in a fort in the Dien Bien Phu Valley near the border of Vietnam and Laos. Viet Minh forces moved into the surrounding mountains, and there were more than 250,000 Viet Minh workers, half of whom were women, who hauled Soviet-made artillery into the mountains. And there were more than 50,000 Viet Minh soldiers who sieged the French fort for 55 days. Ike considered intervening. He said, quote, The possible consequences of the loss are just incalculable to the free world. End quote. And he also referred to the concept of falling dominoes in Southeast Asia. But the Korean War was still fresh on Americans' minds, so the administration decided not to intervene. On May 7, 1954, the Viet Minh overran the French at Dien Bien Phu. And the next day, 
there were scheduled international talks on Vietnam in Geneva, Switzerland. By July 21st, an agreement was reached to divide Vietnam at the 17th parallel. Viet Minh forces would go north, and French forces would go south. But we should note that thousands of Viet Minh supporters stayed in the south, and French rule was abolished, though France would continue to assert some control and influence in the south until 1955, when its troops formally pulled out. North Vietnam was controlled by Ho and the Viet Minh, and he consolidated its power through imprisonment, executions, indoctrination, and the control of the press. Hundreds were shot, drowned, or buried alive. On the other hand, they did institute land reform and persecuted wealthy landlords, giving land back to the poor. Despite the brutality, Uncle Ho, as he was called, remained the popular figurehead of Vietnamese nationalism. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Republic of South Vietnam. By 1955, South Vietnam was ostensibly a republic under the rule of President Ngo Zien Diem. He had rigged the vote to win 98% of all ballots, but he was an anti-colonialist and a Catholic in a mostly Buddhist country. He rejected the Geneva Agreement to hold nationwide elections because he knew that Ho Chi Minh would win. But the United States supported him because he was a staunch anti-communist, and as a result, the United States sent a great deal of aid. Ziem even visited the United States in 1957 and was hailed as a protector of freedom. In order to maintain security, Ziem built the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, called Arvin for short. They had modern weaponry thanks to the United States, but suffered a great deal from corruption and incompetent leadership. The government as well was exceedingly corrupt. They had failed to redistribute land, and so peasants in the countryside hated the Ziem regime. Ziem continued to crush communists in the south, but never quite succeeded. Now to give you an idea of the amount of U.S. aid pouring in, between 1955 to 1961, $1.5 billion in aid to South Vietnam was given. That is a lot of money, though it seems like peanuts now, especially when you consider that the entire defense budget was $35 billion. By 1960, South Vietnam was the fifth largest foreign aid recipient in the United States budget. 78% of that aid was military. $85 million a year was spent on tanks, planes, and weapons to Arvin. Despite this, Arvin was in pitiful shape. The army was listed as having 250,000 men, but most did not have weapons and deserted. U.S. consumer goods were brought to South Vietnam. Automobiles, whiskey, clothing, television, stereos, all were given or were sold to a growing urban middle class. But a black market grew, and one South Vietnamese general got rich selling drugs to Arvin and United States soldiers alike. This will produce long-range problems, and all of this is tied to the affluence concentrated in South Vietnam's cities. 90% of the population lived as impoverished peasants in villages and hamlets. They were exploited by absentee landlords. They were abused by the military. Their economic vitality was limited, and everything was very oppressive. The money spent on military and consumer products was of little use to these people. In addition, very little of the aid was used to develop infrastructure or indigenous manufacturing which would have helped the economy and the peasantry. So when the money is pulled, South Vietnam's economy will collapse. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Resettlement. For several years, the North did not interfere much in the South. However, in 1959, the North started actively supporting communist rebels in South Vietnam. They sent soldiers and supplies down a trail, or several trails, known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. By early 1960, 150 South Vietnamese officials were being assassinated per month. The South's officials tried to crush this revolt, and one way they tried to do this was by separating the peasants from the South Vietnamese communists. These peasants were forcibly relocated to agrovilles, which upset many who did not want to leave their ancestral homelands and many peasants responded by joining the communists. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Unrest in Vietnam. In December 1960, 
the formation of the National Liberation Front, or NLF, was done in the South. This was a coalition of people who opposed President Ziem. Initially, they emphasized nationalism, not a communist revolution, similar to what the Viet Minh did in the North early on. U.S. soldiers will later call NLF troops Viet Cong, or VC, or Victor Charlie. At this point in the conflict in Vietnam, it had two separate components, a civil war in the South, with the North helping rebels in the South. And U.S. policymakers often misunderstood what was going on, and focused too much on what the North was doing, as opposed to the actions of the ZM regime. In January 1961, JFK entered the White House and began to contemplate the situation in Vietnam. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Disengagement. In July of 1961, JFK supposedly told Robert McNamara to begin preparing for a gradual withdrawal of American military advisors from Vietnam starting in late 1963. At this point, Arvin, using American resources like armored vehicles and helicopters, seemed to be beating back the Viet Cong. And by December of that year, there were more than 9,000 U.S. advisors in South Vietnam. Also by the end of 1961, there were more than 600 strategic hamlets which had been built in South Vietnam. These were fortified peasant villages, surrounded by moats and bamboo spikes and monitored by local authorities. And as we see, this is another attempt to separate the peasants from the communists, and it had poor results. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Lead Up to Ziem's Removal. On May 8, 1963, South Vietnamese troops fired on Vietnamese demonstrators flying Buddhist flags. This was part of a general crackdown by the Catholic Ziem regime against Buddhists who had been protesting for political reforms. On June 11th, a Buddhist monk burned himself at a Saigon intersection with an entire crowd watching. In the ensuing months, more self-immolations and anti-Buddhist crackdowns followed. The wife of President Ziem did not make things better when she told reporters that they needed more, quote, barbecues, end quote. To many around the world, Ziem's government appeared brutal and out of control, and to make matters worse, Ziem's top assistant openly started talking to North Vietnamese about brokering a settlement that would get the Americans out of the country. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Ziem's Assassination. So the JFK administration started thinking about how to get rid of Ziem, in August of 1963, JFK's administration communicated with angry South Vietnamese generals and approved their plan to stage a coup against President Ziem. However, when the final OK was asked for, JFK was off on vacation and their low-level assistant inside the administration gave the OK. And this is why it's important to always have command and control, to always have effective officials in place, and to always check with the higher up because you never know when some run-of-the-mill decision is going to lead to an absolute disaster. On November 1st, South Vietnamese generals carried out the coup and brutally murdered Ziem. With Ziem gone, North Vietnam stepped up its aid to the Viet Cong, and going forward, the Hawks in North Vietnam will become more prominent in their government's day-to-day decision-making, and Ho Chi Minh was eventually pushed out onto the sidelines by these hardliners. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Gulf of Tonkin Incident. As you recall, the United States had been involved in Vietnam through two presidencies. Eisenhower and JFK had used advisors to train Arvin forces and to fight the NLF, or VC, who waged a civil war against the South's government. But now North Vietnam was sending aid and cadres of men who were political officers to rally communist support in the South but there were no real combat troops introduced yet. This will soon change. On August 2nd, 1964, the USS Maddox was in the Gulf of Tonkin, off of North Vietnam, and was monitoring South Vietnamese gunboat attacks on North Vietnamese islands. In the chaos, the Maddox was shot and left a one-inch diameter hole in the side of the warship. Two days later, the USS Turner Joy went into the same waters. U.S. sonar operators claimed that the North Vietnamese fired a torpedo at them, but the night was stormy and the sonar operators were jittery and inexperienced. 
and there is no physical evidence of a torpedo attack taking place. Nevertheless, with a presidential election looming, LBJ wanted to take a strong stand against communism. So LBJ responded by ordering limited strikes against North Vietnamese bases. More importantly, he sent the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution to Congress, which said, quote, that the Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression, end quote. This passed the House unanimously, in the Senate with only two negative votes. Essentially, this gave the president the power to take the United States to war without a congressional declaration of war. And unfortunately, the United States has continued this trend for several decades. In response to this declaration of war, beginning in September of 1964, the North Vietnamese Army, or the NVA, began sending troops into South Vietnam for the first time. In going forward, North Vietnam increasingly sought aid from China and the Soviet Union, thus internationalizing the war in Vietnam. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Bombing the North. In February of 1965, NLF forces attacked the USS Garrison at Pleiku, South Vietnam, killing eight Americans and wounding 126 others. The LBJ administration had been waiting for a pretext to justify bombing North Vietnam, and this was exactly what they needed. This led to Operation Rolling Thunder, which was America's first sustained bombing campaign of North Vietnam. U.S. generals also asked for two battalions of Marines to guard the air bases in South Vietnam. So now we have the introduction of actual American combat troops instead of just advisors. And with air bases all over South Vietnam, you'll see soon need more U.S. troops to guard them. Make a little note right here, and I'm going to talk about it later. But the United States is fighting this war with technology and tactics designed for a confrontation with traditional Soviet-style forces. We were using heavy B-52 bombers meant to nuke or carpet bomb Soviet cities, not precision strikes or even the use of fighter bombers. The United States fighters were designed for long-range distant missile-to-missile combat or long-range nuclear missile weapons not dogfights, with smaller and more maneuverable fighters engaging in traditional dogfights. Tanks meant for the plains of Europe and Russia were now being deployed to the jungles and rice paddies of South Vietnam. So our fighting is not effective. It is based on the last wars and is not useful in this new situation. This will cause a lot of problems for policymakers and planners, but especially for the grunts and pilots in harm's way. Kind of like U.S. forces in Afghanistan and Iraq today. You remember Donald Rumsfeld's famous remark? You go to war with the army you have. Well, really, that's just bad planning. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Americanization of the Vietnam War. On March 8th, 1965, just one day after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, U.S. Marines waded ashore at Da Nang, South Vietnam and they officially became the first U.S. combat troops on the Asian mainland since the Korean conflict. As I stated before, they were needed there to protect the bases, and this will gradually increase troop demands. By July of 1965, LBJ approved a military request for more U.S. troops to be sent to South Vietnam. U.S. commanders had asked for 150,000 troops, but LBJ only approved 50,000 then, with another 50,000 coming by the end of the year. As LBJ said at the time, quote, I'm going up old Ho Chi Minh's leg one inch at a time. Now, this incremental approach will eventually have disastrous effects. And we have to ask ourselves, why did he do this? Well, it's unfortunately due to politics. Americans don't want to be soft on communism, but they also don't want major troop commitments elsewhere. And it's hard to sell this to the public who are confused about why we're in Vietnam at all. And this is kind of a trend that we're going to see throughout American history. The demand to be hard on terror. The demand to be hard on communism. But we're not willing to sacrifice to do it. It's a problem. Anyway. In December of 1965, LBJ ordered a halt to U.S. bombing for 37 days in the hopes to bring North Vietnamese to the negotiating table. But they remained defiant. At the year's end, there were 184,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam. And we see now that the war is increasingly becoming Americanized. Please advance to the next slide entitled, In Country. 
Historians describe the Vietnam War as the working class war, because the majority of men who went to Vietnam were not the sons of the wealthy or even the middle class. But these were working class kids. Their fathers were blue collar workers, many of them union members. This war had been described as a working class war due to the one-sided nature of those who went and fought there, because other conflicts in the past had had uh, larger amounts of the wealthy and elite involved in the conflict. We will see that this working class war will produce an intense conflict in the ranks between these working class kids who regret coming or either forced to in the draft and their elite West Point officers. As a result of these conflicts, this will lead to a great deal of fragging. Fragging is where one soldier, a member of the rank and file, kills, assassinates, murders an officer so he doesn't have to follow orders. We estimate that between 10 to 15% of U.S. officers were fragged by their own men in this war. And a lot of the times this was done by tossing a grenade at them. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. There's a story of an enlisted man. He's in the jungles of Vietnam and he's smoking a joint. His officer, fresh out of West Point, comes, knocks on his helmet, tells him to throw that shit away and to get on point. Officer starts walking forward and then here's the pulling of a grenade pin and he instinctively jumps to his left. Well, the grenade goes off to his right. He picks up his rifle, runs back to the guy who threw it, and begins beating the hell out of him until the platoon has to drag this officer off of the bloodied enlisted men. And this is just one example of a numerous amount of episodes where officers were being attacked by their own troops. Of course, not all officers and troops suffered this fate. Many U.S. units are conducting what are called search-and-destroy missions. This means that you are going into the countryside. You're walking around. You try to find some VC. You come to a village. You interrogate some people, arrest some, and then you burn it. The basic point is that you are bait. You are out there to be attacked, so then you can call in the artillery or the air support to wipe out the VC. And apparently, this tactic is still around to this day, unfortunately. U.S. grunts also have to worry about guerrilla warfare and booby traps. See, the VC and the NVA are always out there. They are waiting to outnumber you in order to attack. So they're not going to give battle willingly. They're going to attack you on their terms, and they're going to wear you down by making you march endlessly or by getting you with booby traps, falling into a pit of spears lined with human feces. Well, At those times where the VC or the NVA do outnumber you, they will launch an attack. They will try to get so close to you that you will hesitate to call in air power on yourself. And Grunts called this a brawl. It was very deadly. It was very scary. I'm going to try and find a clip of it, but there's this amazing um, line from the Ken Burns Vietnam War uh, documentary in which uh, one of the uh, Vietnam veterans talks about just how good the VC are and how utterly terrifying it was to be in these close-knit brawls. Um, Hopefully I'll be able to find it, but if not, uh, Ken Burns' Vietnam series, highly recommend it. It's one of the best documentaries out there. Now, another frightening aspect of these brawls is that the VC know that if they wound one man, others will come to rescue him. And so what they will do is they will cause casualties. They will fire low, wound a person, so that they bring out more troops in order to be ambushed. And this, unfortunately, is going to lead to a lot of dead GIs. Because as some of you know, the Marines, the Army, they try to never leave anyone behind. So as you can see, overall, search and destroy was not very successful. And so commanders become overly focused on what we call body count. The number of people killed. Because if what is important you can't count, then you make what you can count important. Unfortunately... The focus on body count will create a tendency for otherwise honorable men to lie, to inflate the numbers, or to say that all the dead were VC, kids and women including. And this is the same problem we have today with drone strikes. Is that really a dead terrorist, or did you accidentally blow up a wedding party and you're now trying to make an excuse for it? Grunts will also be greatly upset at the futility of positions taken and abandoned, as time and time again, U.S. Marines will take hills fortified by the North Vietnamese Army. These Marines attack it only because the enemy is there. And remember, the North Vietnamese Army wants to be attacked because commanders need their body count. So you got to charge in, 
take that position, and then once you've taken it, you got to abandon it, because the ground is useless to you. It doesn't matter to the overall war effort. Then the VC come back in, or the NVA fortify it, and you have to repeat the process over and over again. So as U.S. Marines have to fight for the same damn hell year after year, this is entirely demoralizing. Now often, after being attacked for days, weeks, months, years, you are at your wit's end. You have suffered some of the most horrible combat in human history. But the Army Top Command wants you to take prisoners. But in order to be taken prisoner, you have to be captured by American units who have been ambushed, who have been booby-trapped, who have suffered through hell. And in the words of one Marine, if they fell into our hands, he was one sorry fucker. End quote. Now, I don't want to overplay this. Obviously, a lot of GIs did their duty with honor and didn't do anything wrong. But in every single human war, whenever you put people in a terrible position and you expose them to danger for extended periods of time, stuff is always bound to happen. And that's just human nature. Anyway, in Vietnam, U.S. troops also suffered severe equipment issues, which I alluded to earlier. Remember, you go to war with the army you have. Everything is designed or planned for World War III on the open fields of Russia. Planes there are not meant for dogfights, but to protect bombers and to fire missiles hundreds of miles away. Tanks are for the open ground, not rice paddies. The M16, a brand new American rifle, makes sense in the open fields of Europe, but in the jungles and rice paddies of Southeast Asia, they are terrible. One Marine described them as a, quote, piece of shit because it needed constant cleaning and it usually jammed in the middle of combat right when it was needed most and it got a lot of good GIs killed. Now, the enemy employed anything they could use, from old Mosin Nagans to the Russian or Chinese-made SKS, but eventually, many North Vietnamese troops carried the AK-47, and this will survive anything. You can have it rust shut, you just slam it against a rock or a table, and that thing will keep on firing. I mean, go and look up the pictures of Somali pirates and their AK-47s. I mean, those things are rusted garbage but they still fire. So, American equipment issues in Vietnam leads to a lot of problems. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Domestic Opinion Turns. 1966 was the beginning of congressional investigations and televised hearings concerning Vietnam. This was led by Arkansas Senator J. William Fulbright, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The country was riveted by these broadcasts, it was the first real view into the actual situation in Vietnam. George Kennan, one of the major architects of American foreign policy during the Cold War, said that containment, which he helped write, was appropriate for Europe, not Southeast Asia. But despite these voices of dissent and the coverage, troops continued to be deployed to Vietnam. And by the end of 1966, there were 385,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam. Please turn to the next slide entitled domestic opinion turns. In 1967 alone, there were 108,000 B-52 bombing runs over North Vietnam. Foreign officials across the globe decried the bombing of the North, and hundreds of thousands of war protesters, especially college students, took to the U.S. streets, and they chanted things like, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Or, hell no, we won't go. But these just weren't long-haired hippies protesting, there is also a large group of Vietnam veterans against the war. And this is one of the strongest voices against the war, by these veterans who had served there. They saw their friends die. They knew that they weren't winning, yet they kept hearing the opposite from the government. So they went out and protested. They discussed the atrocities they saw, and it was very damning to American morale. More and more Americans began to ignore draft notices and fled to Canada, we estimate that about 500,000 American men, including Muhammad Ali, attempted to dodge the draft, though Muhammad Ali was imprisoned for it. The nightly news broadcast of body counts led some to dub Vietnam the Living Room War. This is not like being an embedded reporter today. You gotta go get clearance, then you're placed in a safe unit, you can only report on certain things, they only let you say certain things. But in this era, you can just take your camera, hop on a helicopter, and go with a unit. And you can even get ambushed with them. 
There were dozens of U.S. journalists who were killed in the midst of combat in Vietnam. And all of this raw war is caught on film. But also the terrible atrocities. The images of GIs burning villages with weeping mothers holding their babes in their arms. And it is just not a good look for America. In May, McNamara wrote to LBJ, quote, There may be a limit beyond which many Americans in much of the world will permit the United States to continue to go on. The picture of the world's greatest superpower killing or seriously injuring 1,000 non-combatants a week while trying to pound a tiny, backward nation into submission on an issue whose merits are hotly disputed is not a pretty one. It could conceivably produce a costly distortion in the American national consciousness and in the world image of the United States. And on that one point, Robert McNamara was right. McNamara resigned his position as Secretary of Defense later that fall. But all these worries were done in private. The public had never been told that the government believed the the cause was hopeless. Because if they did, who would allow their sons to go for a doomed war? Well, the situation in South Vietnam just keeps getting worse. In September of 1967, South Vietnam held an election. Yay! But the victor, Nguyen Vien Thu, was elected with only 35% of a rigged vote. So imagine that. You're exceedingly corrupt, you rig an election, and you still barely win with 35%. That's just ineffectiveness. What this means in total is that more and more people will continue to support the NLF. On October 21st, more than 75,000 protesters gathered at the Lincoln Memorial to hear anti-war speeches. And this is the famous scene from um, Forrest Gump where uh, Jenny runs out into the middle of the, you know, the, the pond and he goes, Jenny! I can't do a good impression, but you follow me. Anyway, at the year's end, there were 485,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam's four military districts. But yet, that is not going to be enough to win the war. Please advance to the next slide, entitled 1968, Year of Tumult. 1968 was one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history. There were 535,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam during that year. The White House and the Pentagon kept insisting that the United States was winning the war. But 1968 turned out to be the war's bloodiest year, with more than 14,500 U.S. soldiers killed, 46,000 wounded, and at least 200,000 Vietnamese killed, though it could have been higher. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Tet Offensive. On January 30th, 1968, it was the first day of the Vietnamese Lunar New Year, Tet and the NLF defied a holiday truce to launch what was called the Tet Offensive. This was simultaneous VC attacks on 27 key South Vietnamese cities, including the capital of Saigon. Their goal was to overthrow the South Vietnamese government, and the NLF actually managed to blow up the wall surrounding the U.S. Embassy in Saigon and held the grounds for several hours, but were eventually beaten back by U.S. Marines and MPs. During this attack, there's also a famous image, or video, of the Saigon police chief shooting an NLF prisoner in the head, which made its way back to America. When the smoke cleared, LBJ and U.S. generals claimed victory. And technically they were right. Because between January 29th and March 31st, the NLF and North Vietnamese had lost 50,000 soldiers killed, maybe times two wounded, while the United States and South Vietnamese had suffered only 3,000 400 casualties. And the communists had failed to take most of the South cities where it seemed there was a lack of enthusiasm for communism. Despite this, after Tet, many Americans agreed with news anchor Walter Conkright, who asked, What the hell is going on? I thought we were winning this war. End quote. The post Tet polls showed a continuing decline in American public support for the war. And when LBJ heard Cronkite's broadcast, he said, quote, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. And this will factor heavily into his thinking about his future electoral prospects. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Malay Massacre. On March 16, 1968, American troops went into the South Vietnamese village of Mai Lai and gunned down over 300 people, including women and children, many of whom had been beaten and raped beforehand. This is known as the Mai Lai Massacre. See, back during the Tet Offensive, near a village called Ben Trai, 
one U.S. soldier was quoted as saying, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Well, Mile is the embodiment of that type of thinking. And the massacre actually could have been worse if it hadn't been for a U.S. helicopter pilot who saw what these GIs were doing and tried to stop it. Now, Lieutenant William Cayley Jr. was only one of the convicted 26 people charged with war crimes. He was given a life sentence and served three years in house arrest. And we have to ask ourselves, is he just following orders? Because that type of thinking, just following orders, can lead to some really bad stuff. On the other hand, notice, no generals are prosecuted. And that's just the grunt, the frontline soldier, getting the raw end of the deal. They don't want to be there. They're put there by someone else's wishes. And yet they're being blamed with just cracking under the pressure. Not trying to excuse war crimes. I'm just saying it's a little bit more complicated. That's all. Anyway, this type of atrocities is part of larger issues like Tiger Force. Tiger Force was a recon unit that was meant to sweep the countryside, but as one lieutenant stated, quote, there are no friendlies here. In a later investigation of Tiger Force's conduct revealed that they, quote, routinely tortured and executed prisoners, they routinely practiced the intentional killing of unarmed Vietnamese villagers, including men, women, children, and the elderly, the routine practices of cutting and collecting the ears of victims, the practice of wearing necklaces composed of human ears, the practice of cutting off and collecting scalps of victims, incidents where soldiers planted weapons on murdered Vietnamese villagers, and an incident where a young mother was drugged, raped, and then executed. There's one final incident I want to share, where a soldier killed a baby and cut off its head after the baby's mother had been killed. And this type of bad press gets back to the American people. And it really puts a moral stain on the country and on our armed forces. So, again, horrors of war, it's a consistent theme throughout history, but we can do better. In the days following the New Hampshire primary, one of LBJ's top advisors told him the war in Vietnam could not be won. So LBJ reluctantly turned down a U.S. general's request for an extra 200,000 more troops there. And on March 31st, LBJ addressed and shocked the nation. He informed them that he would send 13,500 new U.S. soldiers to Vietnam. He said that he would limit the bombing of North Vietnam and aggressively pursue a ceasefire, but then stated, quote, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president, end quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled Push for Peace. In October of 1968, LBJ made one last overture for peace, in part to help Hubert Humphrey, who was trailing badly in the polls, to Republican candidate Richard Nixon. LBJ agreed to halt the bombing of North Vietnam in exchange for the North's agreement to limit infiltration of the South and to let the South government participate in peace talks. The North accepted, and initially the South did too, but then they pulled out of the talks at the last minute. Why would they do that? Well, President Tu was worried that his government would be sold out during these negotiations. But he was told this in an extremely unethical act by Republican aides of Nixon, who said that if he could just hold out till Nixon was elected, Nixon promised he would get him a better deal than Humphrey could. Now, go and click on the slide. There's a little video there from the Ken Burns documentary where you can see this whole episode. Okay, so did you watch it? I mean... That is treason. Nixon called off a potential peace that will result in another 20,000 plus U.S. deaths and at least another million more Vietnamese deaths for essentially the same peace plan in 1968 that Nixon will get in 1973. This is outrageous, and LBJ was livid, but on October 31st, he publicly announced that the bombing would stop anyway. LBJ could have revealed Nixon's treason. But he didn't, because it would have exposed the fact that the CIA was wiretapping the president of an allied nation, and the fact that the FBI was wiretapping the Saigon embassy. So Nixon's secret was safe. He had committed treason by getting a regime that was supported by the blood of 35,000 dead Americans to go back on a peace talk in order to help Nixon get reelected. That is incredible. And asking a foreign regime to interfere in American elections? 
doesn't sound familiar at all. No, doesn't. No, has no has no relation whatsoever. Right, right, right. Please advance to the next slide entitled Nixon's Vietnam. With Nixon in office, he pursued the policy of Vietnamization, meaning U.S. troops would be gradually withdrawn as South Vietnamese increased their role in the fighting. Sounds pretty much like what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq very recently. Anyway, Nixon also pursued the invasion of Cambodia, where U.S. forces sought to disrupt the Ho Chi Minh Trail and defeat the 40,000 North Vietnamese troops guarding it. Well, U.S. troops invaded, disrupted North Vietnamese operations, but failed to lead to a decisive victory. When they withdrew, this provoked an intense civil war, which brought the Khmer Rouge to power. And from 1975 to 1979, the Cambodian genocide was committed by the Khmer Rouge, in which 2 million Cambodians were murdered by the dictator Pol Pot. And by the way, one of the first groups he went after were intellectuals. And I shit you not, if you wore glasses, you were considered to be an intellectual, and you were killed. American troops were gradually withdrawn. And of course, if you're stuck in Vietnam, you hate the idea that you know the war is going to end, and yet you still have to sit there and deal with it until it's your turn to get on the plane. And that produces a great deal of discontent among the men. All the while, Henry Kissinger is in Europe, trying to start peace negotiations with the North Vietnamese. And they continue to refuse or back off. So Nixon authorized Operation Linebacker 2, the heavy bombing of North Vietnam around Christmas of 1972. And in the words of one former security analyst, we were attempting to bomb the North Vietnamese into accepting our surrender. And in a way, it worked. Because on January 27, 1973, the Paris Peace Accords were signed with the United States and North Vietnam. Nixon knew this was nothing more than a ceasefire, and that South Vietnam was ultimately doomed. But it gave him the time to get U.S. troops out and to focus on other things while the North Vietnamese prepared for the final push to destroy the South. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The South Falls. The North Vietnamese broke their ceasefire in December of 1974, and NV units rapidly advanced as Arvin forces collapsed. On April 30, 1975, Saigon fell, and the media captured the mass anarchy of these evacuations. There are stories of this episode of various CIA or other American officials going to the homes of collaborators or Vietnamese who had worked so hard and so long with American forces and basically said, here's my ticket on this helicopter, you go, the North Vietnamese won't touch me, but if they find you, you will be executed. And there is this mass evacuation. Somewhere between 800,000 to 2 million Vietnamese fled the country rather than suffer the reprisals of the North Vietnamese and the NLF. As a result of the fall of Saigon and the fall of the South, Vietnam was finally unified under communism. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Consequences. It is hard to put a firm number on it, but anywhere from 800,000 to 3.1 million Vietnamese were killed during the Vietnam War. Roughly 200 to 300,000 Cambodians were killed, and 20,000 to 200,000 Laotians were killed. Indochina was destabilized. Cambodian-Vietnamese war occurred very shortly after, and Vietnam even went to war with China in the subsequent years, which proves the folly of thinking that all communist countries are the same. There was no such thing as a global communistic threat. In fact, Nixon and other American politicians will show that you can pit communist countries against one another, helping end the Cold War. In the aftermath of this conflict, Communist governments began the oppression of all dissidents within inside the country, which continued for the next decade. For the United States, they suffered 58,220 American killed and 1,626 missing in action. U.S. troops suffered massive health issues due to the use of chemicals like Agent Orange, which has led to various brain tumors, cancers, and even physical deformities in their children. The United States spent $134.53 billion on the Vietnam War. We could have funded universal health care. Every kid could have went to college. We could have been having flying cars. But instead, we spent it on a useless war. As a result of the Vietnam War, the United States Army's fighting capacity was at its lowest level 
since it was starving at Valley Forge during the Revolution. Veterans were disrespected and abused upon coming home. They were called baby killers. People spat at them, threw drinks at them, and generally did not want anything to do with them. Veterans very rarely talked about that war, since it was so traumatic. In fact, there's a story of two families that got rather close and lived next to one another, and it was only after 10, 15 years of living next to one another that both wives finally confessed to the other that their husbands had been Vietnam in Vietnam. That is how little people talked about it. Veterans, after suffering such disrespect, fell into depression, alcohol and drug abuse, and large-scale homelessness. And it is an absolute travesty what the American public did to their veterans. And we must remember, just because we disagree with a war doesn't mean that our fighting men and women do not deserve our utmost respect, period. As a result of all of this trauma and infighting over the war in Vietnam, Americans developed what was called Vietnam Syndrome, the fear of international intervention in foreign quagmires. It lasted all the way until 1991, when the American army victoriously marched back through the streets of New York and Washington, D.C., after their successful defeat of Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War. And I remember Vietnam veterans wearing their uniforms, hugging and crying to newcoming USGIs, saying, Thank you, I can wear my uniform with pride again. Remember, we must always respect our veterans. We should maybe learn one lesson from all of this. It's not a bad idea to want to ask more questions about getting involved in foreign affairs, about leading international interventions, because all of the mistakes that we made in the Vietnam War, taking an army that wasn't ready for this type of work and putting them into an environment which the army we have is not suited for, happened again. Getting involved in a place that we do not fundamentally understand and has been the graveyard of empires for centuries, happened again. The death of civilians the abuse towards our veterans, and all of these other massive policy, personal, and cultural issues that we deal through have happened again. That is why history is important. Learn these mistakes. Vote for people who won't make the same dumb decision over and over again. Because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If you go and look on the last bullet point of the PowerPoint, I have placed a link there towards CNN's uh, 70s series and the final episode on Vietnam. And go to minute marker 41, I believe, and you should see the closing comments of a reporter standing in front of Arlington National Cemetery. And he has a really good point, which is, next time a politician wants to tell you why it's necessary to go to war, make him stand in front of those graves because the reason they have to put your lives at risk better be a damn good one. Well, that is all I have for you today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.